Hello and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. On today's episode, Gabe Pacheco and I talk about the international women's strike, which took place on March 8th, and we speak to two members of the National Planning Committee, Kate D. Griffiths and Titi Bhattacharya. Gabe and I also respond to two op-eds criticizing the women's strike as a strike for privileged women only. I think you're going to enjoy that. It's a pretty fun dissection of these articles. As always, we will be releasing bonus content that our Patreon supporters will have access to. So go to patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. You'll definitely want to hear the bonus episode because the organizers respond to some major controversies around the march and whether you can be a feminist without opposing the Israeli occupation and what feminism really is. And just some background on the International Women's Strike, which was held on March 8th. It was an international day of action planned and organized by women in more than 50 different countries. In the spirit of solidarity and internationalism in the United States, March 8th was a day of action organized by and for women who have been marginalized and silenced for decades of neoliberalism directed towards working women, women of color, native women, disabled women, immigrant women, Muslim women, lesbian, queer, and trans women. March 8th was the beginning of a new international feminist movement that organizes resistance not just against Trump and his misogynist policies, but also against the conditions that produce Trump, namely the decades-long economic inequality, racial and sexual violence, and imperial wars abroad. We come from many political traditions, but are united around the following common principles. An end to gender violence, reproductive justice for all, labor rights, full social provisioning, anti-racist and anti-imperialist feminism, environmental justice for all, And just so people know, if you want to go to a follow-up meeting to discuss how the strike went and what the next steps are, you can. Sunday, March 12th at Verso Books, which is at 20 J Street in Brooklyn on the 10th floor. Again, that's Sunday, March 12th at Verso Books, 20 J Street, Brooklyn, 10th floor. And it'll be from 3.30 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. Hi, welcome to the Katie Helper Show. I'm your host, Katie Helper, and as always, I'm here with Gabe Pacheco. And on today's show, we speak to two national organizers of the women's strike, Kate D. Griffiths and Titi Bhattacharya. Something really interesting happened, which is that some women who are like pantsuit nation feminists decided to write some op-eds about the strike And they were very critical of the way the strike was for privileged women only. And it's interesting because they're pretty privileged in the way they're written. This is Megan Dome, who is writing at the L.A. Times. And her her headline is, A day without a woman is a strike for privileged protesters. Without a woman is a strike for privileged protesters. This is maybe not the most woke intro, okay? In the fine tradition of taking something that worked before and milking it to the point of uselessness or maybe self-parody, a strike has been called for March 8th, International Women's Day, also known this year as a day without a woman. You don't open a piece that's like calling people insensitive towards underprivileged people, in my opinion, by dissing strikes. Right. I feel like that's kind of a rule of thumb if you're pretending to care about workers and women. Uh, I mean, I'm pro-strike. Yeah. I'm all about it. Yeah. I just think inconveniencing it's, people. Right, right. No matter what the thing is. Yep. Gotta I, do it. I, I just think it's really funny to have someone who's pretending to speak for the who will speak for the underprivileged women workers. It's this woman who thinks that strikes are um I don't know what is what does that even mean? In the fine tradition of taking something that worked before and milking it to the point of uselessness or maybe self parody? 
Does she mean that about all strikes? Yeah, like strikes uh, are so last season. Yeah, they're so exactly they're so uh, 2016. They're so two months ago. The organizers. Okay, she does she does give them credit for for making for options that aren't just striking, right? Um, so she goes, the organizers explained that, quote, anyone anywhere can join in one or all of the following ways. One, women take the day off from paid or unpaid labor. Two, avoid shopping for one day. Three, wear red in solidarity with a day without a woman, end quote. And then she goes on, as for wearing red, what is the dress code exactly? Are you supposed to wear pink, your pink pussy hats too? And um, So this woman doesn't like the pink pussy hats? I guess not. Actually, you know what she says? She, she, uh, she, she ends the piece with a real bang. She says, And for all but the most affluent classes, March 8th will be a day like any other day, except maybe for some serious color clashing, when those red clothes are paired with those pink hats, in which case maybe everyone should stay home. Who is this lady? <laughs> She's a columnist at the L.A. Times. It's not like her writing reeks of privilege or anything. Just to give you a a bit of a sense of this, she goes on to say, Now, you may have noticed that I've been away from this column for the last several months. The official reason is that I'm on book leave. Another reason is that for 11 years, I've had the freedom and pleasure of writing a column that can favor counterintuitive points over predictable ones and resist towing any party line. In the Trump era, in these early days, that approach just doesn't feel appropriate. These are times that call for a sledgehammer, and I'm just not the sledgehammer type. So I've been laying low for a while, but I'm crawling out of my hole this week, blunt instrument in hand, to say a few words about a day without a woman. I highly doubt that anyone, anywhere, can or will join this party. That's because it's really going to be a day without a privileged woman. Thanks for crawling out of your hole with your sledgehammer to make that point. So she was in like a Kaczynski cabin (laughs) for a while since the Trump uh, ascendancy. And she hasn't said anything about that. And then the minute that uh, some women have decided that they'd like to have their voices heard and are doing it by going out and disrupting the flow of uh, everyday commercial transactions, she's going to freak out and uh, attack her own kind. Well, yeah, and you know what it is? It's that This is woman-on-woman violence. It is. It's a hate crime. Like crabs in a barrel, just pulling each other down. It's awful. Um, okay. The precursor to A Day Without a Woman was A Day Without Immigrants, a boycott strike that occurred on a large scale in 2006 in response to anti-immigration measures proposed during the George W. Bush administration. It was repeated quietly last month. Galvanizing as these events may be, They are not like union picket lines choreographed to achieve a specific goal, which is why the question of how much meaningful change was affected by the 2006 protests is still a subject of debate. A day without a woman seems especially poised for unquantifiable results given the diffuse nature of its platform. What is guaranteed is media attention, especially the kind that germinates on social media and spawns a flurry of internet commentary and hot takes about the bedeviled state of the contemporary female. That's funny because she herself is part of that spawning a flurry of uh, internet commentary. Meanwhile, for the millions of women who have no choice but to show up and meet their responsibilities on March 8th and every day, it will be business as usual. Which, when you stop to think about it, is kind of the point, isn't it? At least it should be. We are nearly half the labor force. We are just as important in the workplace and to our families' fiscal welfare as men. All things being equal, which is what we're after, right? (laughs) We are too essential to play hooky. Yeah, uh, the whole point of a strike is that you're essential, lady. You really just Google, like, just read some basic labor history. That's why the idea that women should take a day off en masse to make a political point is both self-defeating and vaguely insulting. It is meant to highlight how crucial we are, but its very premise also suggests the opposite. Women are expendable. A day without a woman plays into the idea that we entered the workforce 
not to support ourselves and our families, but to combat boredom or to boost our self-esteem. For all but a very few affluent women, women, that's never been the case. Okay, lady, I don't know how you're getting that conclusion. Well, is that the same thing with um, a day without an immigrant? Or is that showing that they're expendable? Why can't these people just be smarter or not lie? I, actually, with this woman, I don't know if she's ignorant. Okay, it's time for another round of ignorant or dishonest. Um, I don't think she's ever like talked to someone who's gone on a strike. Does she not understand the point of a strike? No, you go on strike because you are not expendable. Then let's read the other piece of crap. Um, <laughs> this one by Maureen Shaw, which was in Quartz. So here's how, here's the Maureen Shaw. On March 8th, International Women's Day, women across the United States will have the opportunity to participate in the A Day Without a Woman strike. That's a well-intentioned idea, but it's likely that most privileged women will be the ones participating in the much-anticipated follow-up to January's Women's March. This is an unfortunate but not altogether surprising consequence of an event without a clear purpose or an understanding of feminist history, then under the subheading, A Noble Idea. The idea behind the strike is a noble one. Who doesn't want economic equality for everyone? But in practice, most American women cannot afford to opt out of either paid or unpaid labor. This fact, coupled with the very broad aims of the strike, is concerning. Okay, then subheading women's work is real work. Even the idea of refusing to participate in unpaid labor is unfeasible for many women, especially those without limitless resources. Unpaid labor is still labor. Those of us who shoulder caregiving responsibilities cannot just get up and leave children, elderly family members, and others without a support network in place willing to pick up our slack. As a mother whose husband works long hours away from home, how am I supposed to stop taking care of my very young children? My closest family members live hours away, and my friends have children of their own to care for. What You have bad friends if they, if they won't take care of your kids. Either your friends suck or your kids are nightmares, and your friends wouldn't, wouldn't take care of them for you. I love the fact that women have, like, literally risk being fired, beaten, losing their, their livelihoods to strike. And this woman can't get her kids to a male babysitter or can't get her friends to take care of the kids or her husband to bring the kids to work. Believe me, I'd love nothing more than to abdicate my parenting responsibilities in solidarity with the strike. But in order for me to strike at home, I would have to hire help, which is itself antithetical to the premise of a day without a woman. Not if she hires a guy to do the work. Oh, my God. You're right. And then she says, given that my babysitters are female, Gabe, you could really clean up Why are her March babysitters 8th. female? Because she's, she's problematic. Are women the only people that should be around children? Is that what yeah. she's saying? Is that what she's talking Gabe, about? Gabe, you should do, like, you should just run around from house to house tomorrow and offer women who don't earn wages but do work, you should offer them babysitting services. Like a, like a, like a manscab. Yeah, a <laughs> manscab, yeah. That sounds really suggestive of something it isn't, hopefully. No. Right, like something you complain about to your doctor? Manscabs. So right as you said that, Gabe, she does say, given that my babysitters are female, and I suspect this holds true for other many other families. At the very least, I suppose I could order dinner that night instead of cooking and refuse to clean up after the kids, but that would only result in fewer dollars in my pocket and heart palpitations from the mess. This sounds like a woman who's really living paycheck to paycheck. She gets it. If she can't take time, if she can't get, get away from it as a mom... I'm also a bit tired. I'm uh, enough of the like, woe is me. I'm a mother. Right. My you made your bed sleep in it. <laughs> you squirted out those kids. Now deal with it. Yeah. I mean, it's not. It's just like. It, and if your man isn't helping, you should have pre-qualified him beforehand. Yeah. Or find just another like you, one or whatever. Yeah. You pre-qualify people for a loan. You got to pre-qualify a dude to make sure he's going to be a good dad. Yeah. Because it's more than a loan. Let me tell in you. All of these heteronormative relationships that, uh, you know. 
It's I'm, I'm bringing up hypothetical. Sure, 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 sure. Right, 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 right. We don't assume it that, could yeah. be two ladies. If two ladies want to adopt a kid That's or great. have a kid, you should pre-qualify the other mom. Right. Exactly. Right. You know? But I think there was a, a backlash, right? Because feminists, some like white bushy feminists, look down upon housework, right? And then you have some working class feminists and feminists of color who would be like, or women who didn't identify as feminists, and they were like, oh, wow, boo-hoo, you're trying to fight for the right to work and not stay at home. Like, I would love to not have to go out and work. I'd love to be able to stay at home with my own family as opposed to be a domestic for someone else's, right? Right. So then there was this, like, reaction where, you know, being a stay-at-home mom or stay-at-home woman, that that was really valorized, which it should be. But, like... What would you call that? Like a domestic worker? An unpaid domestic worker? <laughs> yeah. A self... Uh, yeah. An auto-domestic worker? freelance domestic work. Mm-hmm. Or permanent. Permalance? Yeah. Maybe. I guess my, my mom worked full-time, and my dad worked long hours. Sometimes she'd have help, but sometimes she wouldn't. And she picked my baby butt up and uh, took me to, to, to protest. Mm-hmm. I went to my first protest at the age of one. It yeah. was an anti-nukes one. Just slung in a papoose. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. And then I went to, um, what were the other ones I went to? I, went, I did many an AIDS walk. Mm-hmm. Walkathon? AIDS walkathon or AIDS walk? And then I did... Marching against AIDS. Well, I was I was torn. I was tempted to do the pro AIDS march, but I at the last minute I came around and the AIDS danceathon. Have I ever talked about that? No. It was pretty. Uh, was it like a Lindy Hop? Did you guys do the Charleston, or was it more updated, like I, a Roger Rabbit Running Man? Yeah, like that. And my cousin and I wore matching vests. So how could the strike have been approached differently? For starters, organizers would do well to learn from the successes and limitations of previous strikes. For example, last year Icelandic women trimmed their workdays by two hours to reflect the gender wage gap, successfully putting, quote, a complex issue into simple terms of hours and minutes, end quote. These tactics enabled more women to participate, thereby potentially increasing the potency and visibility of their action. 2016 wasn't the first time women of Iceland went on strike either. On October 20... So, okay, now she is, like, taking a stroll down (laughs) Icelandic history. On October 24th, 1975, 90% of Icelandic women refused to work, cook, or care for children. The sheer number of participants is mind-boggling, but did not fix the nation's gender problems overnight. As is evidenced by the 2016 strike, even in Iceland, more work needs to be done. Okay, so because they didn't accomplish every single thing they wanted to in their 1975 strike, that proves that strikes are worthless waste of time. As empowering as strikes may feel, they tend to be most effective when they are centered on achieving a particular policy goal. Poland is one of the best modern examples of how women have used strikes to target specific policies. On October 3rd, 2016, tens of thousands of women across Poland went on strike to protest a restrictive abortion ban proposed in Parliament. A few days later, the ban was rejected. Oh, my God. Then she does more. In contrast, it appears that for Icelandic women as well as the American women striking in 1970, the primary result was visibility. Okay. Um... Jesus Christ, what, this woman's like writing a book report. Flexing their economic muscles in the face of discrimination served as a call to action. Today, Iceland at least can point to its ranking atop the World Economic Forum's Global Gender Gap Report. The U.S., in contrast, ranks 26 out of the 145 countries surveyed. Ultimately, women need to be armed with resources beyond red clothing. We can shout about the issues and policies that underpin women's economic inequality, but we must be able to advocate off the streets, too. First of all, I love the idea that she's like, we can achieve it off the streets, too, as if she's on the streets, usually. And she's like, all right, guys, we got to keep it balanced. I can't just be, I can't be walking these streets in protest every day. 
offering fact sheets, suggesting language for contacting elected officials and providing tips for effective lobbying, for instance, will go a long way to help engage women who can't strike on March 8th, but who still want to have their voices heard. Anyway, so we're going to actually speak to someone who was on the National Planning Committee of the Women's Strike. But before we speak to Kate, we bring you this short musical interlude. The song is Bread and Roses. It's sung by Joan Baez. Griffiths, a PhD candidate at the City University of New York, and she writes for places like Africa is a Country and uh, The Nation. Hello? Hi, Kate. Hi. Thank you so much for talking to us. And Kate, I want to ask you what made you decide to join this National Organizing Committee for the International Women's Strike, and where did the idea come from? Um, well, I, I first saw the idea probably the way a lot of people did, which was in the call that the original uh, organizers put out, Chinzia and Titi and Kianga um, and others. And, you know, for me, I've been <clears throat> a longtime um, feminist and activist in the labor movement, and it was really just the closest thing I, I can, I've can i seen to my politics and my perspective. But I really wanted to do everything I could to support the call to action. And that, you know, on top of the fact that I think those organizers and myself just really felt like there was a lot of momentum around um, feminist issues and especially working women's issues um, at this moment and that this was a good time to really build on that platform. It's something I think has been building for a while, but I think we're in a, we're in a moment that's right for this. I think like a lot of these ideas, it, it came from multiple places. I think, you know, the call that was put out initially by, a, you know, a small number of activists, you know, um, including Angela Davis signed on to the original call. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, was a reflection really of a lot of people who left the march on January 21st feeling like a lot of people left feeling very inspired, right? Obviously a huge march, one of the biggest in, in American history, but with a sense of, okay, what do we do now? And it was kind of an obvious next step, I think, for a lot of activists around the, um, around the country, you know, who had organized for the Women's March um, that, you know, escalation makes sense. So, I, you know, I think that's really where the idea is down to. And it's also where the participation is coming from, because we're really operating on a on a shoestring budget. We don't have like a professional staff organizer or money for flying around the country. Um, the fact that there's over 50 events happening around the country is because uh, this is an idea that was emerging from a lot of different places and resonated with people once it started to coalesce. And what about the options for women who cannot take off from work? 
Can you talk about those? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a whole bunch of different options. One of the things that I hadn't expected but has been very effective and actually shut down a couple of school districts um, is workers just writing to, you know, collectively writing or, or petitioning or talking to their their boss and saying, well, we're not coming into work, so why don't you just close the place down? Um, and I know a few different people who've, who've uh, found success with that tactic. Um, people who are going to be going to work who can't stay home from work um, are wearing red to work, um, you know, wearing homemade uh, women's strike t-shirts or strike buttons. I know people who are, who are having lunch rallies or meetings to talk about what kinds of problems women are facing in the workplace and, and how to get started in solving them. So those are all things people are doing. You know, some people don't, don't have paid work. And so staying home from work, you know, is, doesn't make sense as a strike. There's some stuff in the call about, you know, taking a day off from your, your standard uh, socially reproductive household duties. Um, and I think there's even different ways to do that. I mean, some, for some people, that means getting your husband, right, to do stuff that he doesn't normally do and learn skills he might not already have. Um, but not everybody has a husband to take over um, social reproduction in their household. Um, and I, I think and I've long thought I actually wrote about this a couple of years ago. So it's kind of exciting for me to see it happening in real life um, that, you know, one part of that is to start thinking about what kind of networks we can build to um, help each other take care of our, our households and our children to, you know, in a more efficient, collective way so that we can free up time for organizing and activism that we're going to have to be doing over the next few years. It takes a village. It definitely does. <laughs> it takes a village and a lot of pantsuits. Just kidding, not pantsuits. <laughs> um, we always, can always use the pantsuits for, uh, like, recycled flags and yeah. uh, homemade couture. Yeah, exactly. Red badges, red flags. Yeah. <laughs> and how does this, how does the, the strike differ from, for instance, the protest that happened in D.C. around uh, Trump's inauguration? Yeah, I mean, it differs uh, in a couple of different ways. One, just by calling itself a strike and by raising the idea of people using the power of withholding their labor to affect change. I think that itself is a difference. Um, you know, the, the call out by the International Women's Strike U.S. Um, is different in a couple of ways, um, some of which are really important to me. The platform itself emphasizes uh, a really universal picture of who are women and who are working women. Um, it's a trans-inclusive vision. It's a sex worker supportive vision. It's a vision that addresses the colonial and imperial suppression all over the world, and including in Palestine. And those are all things that are different than the platform of, of the Women's March. But I also think a difference is that our, our purpose with the day um, is to move forward in a, in a kind of organizing model where people are building, um, you know, organization at work and organization in their communities um, that we can uh, use to, to achieve some of the demands in that platform down the, you know, down the road as things, as things go on. Right. Um, and, this is, has provoked quite a reaction from certain feminists who seem to have just recently discovered class politics and class analysis. Somehow they missed it before uh, in the primaries, and they've discovered it, conveniently enough, right before you guys are calling for a strike. Uh, do you have any thoughts about these kind of lean-in feminists who are all of a sudden really concerned about who will be able to attend the rally and, you know, as they said so their headlines are th are things like a day without a woman is a strike for privileged protesters, and I kind of want to write a take 
a hot take or a think piece, which is, you know, a day without a woman is a strike for privileged protesters is the type of hot take that comes from privileged writers or something like that. And they, <laughs> well, I, I, I really thought of a kind of wishful thinking, to be honest with you, that um, they're, they're hoping that the only people who go on strike are privileged women because that won't affect them. Um, and it won't uh, push uh, kind of working class feminist politics, which is what they're really opposed to. But to be honest with you, that, that argument is not a new argument. It's an old argument. Anybody who's ever organized in a, a union in a workplace um, uh, has heard an argument, something like that. And every other argument people can pull out of their hats to try to get you to stay home and not to do anything. Right. Um, so it's, to me, it's nothing new. Right. Um, I actually think there's a lot of kind of, you know, this pantsuit feminism that we're seeing and that we've seen. I think there's some guilt like, I think some of the people, the ones who have a conscience, um, you know, I'm not vilifying anyone, but uh, I'm just saying, you know, in general, we never know who has a conscience, who doesn't. But I think there's some guilt. And, you know, if they problematize this, they don't have to feel bad that they're not taking part of it, taking part in it. Maybe. Maybe so. I, I also see the framework that they're sort of forced into articulating this, right? This kind of uh, privileged framework, which uh, rhetorically... Um, mimics a kind of intersectional analysis without actually engaging, in my opinion, in inter intersectional analysis, actually is building on the successes of women's, women, working class women's movements of the past, black feminism, um, and really an upsurge of uh, working class politics and feminism among young people who have who've done a great deal to try to articulate and think through some of these issues um, and have really put them on the table in a way that's just undeniable and it's not easy for, uh, you know, liberal feminists to ignore or, or discredit or disregard and so they have to engage with it in that right within that kind of a framework yeah i'm very impressed by the way in, um neoliberal feminists are able to t call themselves intersectional and yet make arguments that are kind of the antithesis of intersectional all the while saying that they are intersectional it's almost like a skill Maybe yeah, they... and you know, if you if you notice, most of the people who are, who are making this, that is their skill. Their skill is writing think pieces, right? Um, not organizing and not uh, really uh, engaging much beyond doing that. So right. that that doesn't surprise me that they're skilled at it. But for me, I feel most comfortable speaking when I'm part of an organizing process, and I know I'm referring back to conversations I've had with people who are organizing in the workplace, who are organizing for the march, who are, um, you know, thinking about how to take care of their kids uh tomorrow on 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 march 8th and what is the what are the goals of of the strike um you know i think the 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 goals of the strike are really to raise the question of um direct action as a response to the, the situation that we all find ourselves in and we're certainly not the first person to be raising that in a really uh concrete way um in recent history or in 2017 um you know i think we've seen a, a whole spate of really uh, inspiring and uh, impressive, and in some cases, to me, very unexpected direct action, everything from um, the water protectors camp at Standing Rock to the taxi driver strike uh, when the first immigration ban came down um, to the day without an immigrant, you know, um, that took place, uh, you know, just, just last month. Those were all I think in, in a in different ways raising the same uh, question about um, what kinds of action can we take to defend ourselves. 
Right. And and what do you say to the people who say that it's just a thing of privilege? Um, I, well, what I said in my article is that it's, it's a privilege to not have to strike. Right. And you wrote a piece um, called okay. Striking on... In- you wrote a piece called Striking on International Women's Day is not a privilege. Um, and that's at The Nation. You co-wrote that with Magali uh, Miranda Alcazar. Um, and, and you take a really interesting historical look at it, too. The historical part that we were looking at was just saying that the, the conditions that we're facing now are really similar to the conditions that uh, working class women in New York were facing over 100 years ago at the sort of beginning of the modern labor movement, which is precarious work, low wages, violence on the job too many hours, people arguing that you're unorganizable and you don't take your job seriously, and all, all the same reasons that, uh, you know, people can sometimes argue that people can't strike or they can't organize. Um, and International Women's Day really uh, came into being to commemorate a march of 10,000 um, garment workers who are mostly young immigrant women, um, who up until the moment that they took to the streets were considered unorganizable, not real women, not real jobs. Um, and I think the, all of those things are uh, arguments and, and erasures that a lot of women experience today. Um, you know, so that, that's part of our historical perspective. And then part of the perspective is that there's already a lot of people taking risk and taking action and organizing. And we should, you know, if that's not you yet, you should join in. Right. <laughs> you should you should get started. Um, now's a good time as any to start. And the the leadership of the I mean, the, the the committee, can you talk about who's on it and whether it's all white, bougie uh, feminists? Sorry, I'm asking really leading questions. I'm just so annoyed by the <laughs> by the like privilege shaming stuff that I'm trying um, to, to. It's it's not I, it's definitely not that is, you know, the, the organizing committee represents women of different uh, races and, you know, class class status and class background and job categories and people who are mothers, people who are not mothers, people who are queer, people who are straight. Um, you know, but, uh, one of the things that I saw, uh, Kianga Yamada Taylor say earlier today, which I thought was quite good is that whatever, however you representing yourself in a, especially like an immediate interview, you know, if you're being interviewed as a working mother, then people suddenly want to ask, well, where, are the, where are the black women if you're representing yourself as a black, black woman? Well, where are the working class women? Um, and it's really difficult, you know, as much as we talk about intersectionality, it's really difficult for people to imagine, you know, actual human beings who have multiple. Right. Totally. <laughs> a, right. a multiple experience. Right. Um, and in that way, you know, the contributions of, of various organizers can get easily overlooked. Right. And yeah, there's it seems like there's like a real, as usual, an essentializing, right? And like a flattening of, of different groups into separate monoliths. Right. And I would say, you know, the organizing committee is not... Uh, some kind of uh, representative, uh, you know, sociological uh, sample. Um, what brings people who are who's, who came together to organize this together is really long histories of activism and organizing, and long histories of thinking through the problem of women's oppression through uh, a lens of class politics and analysis. It's one of the reasons that I, you know, find a lot of inspiration and in, in comradeship with. Um, the people who are organizing a strike. And and I've heard some people say, oh, this is too radical. You know, it's going to alienate people who don't identify as socialists. Why are they doing this? What, what's your what's your response to that? I think there is a, a, a not a time in the not so recent past where I would have agreed with that analysis. Right. Um, I think this is a different moment. I've 
been in situations and heard from a lot of organizers that they're, you know, people who have held meetings at work who are like, oh, I just called around to see if anybody wanted to come to work and come to this meeting to, you know, sort of vaguely talk about stuff. And everybody showed up and said, okay, how are we going to get a union? Um, I've talked, right. you know, I've, I've held, I started a Marxist feminist reading group, which is, you know, for me five years ago was a, a, a kind of um, nerdy hobby that I had, <laughs> an academic interest, right? Uh, and I thought five people were going to show up and like 50 people showed up to my Marxist feminist reading group. Wow. Um, so I think there's a lot of interest in, in organizing and also in, in learning about the history and politics, the labor movement and of really of the socialist feminist tradition. Right. I mean, I hate to bring everything back to this guy of whom I'm a big fan. <laughs> Gabe is rolling his eyes, embracing himself, <laughs> bracing for it. But it's, you know, there's a little bit of Bernie, a little Bernie Sanders, I think, uh, door opening that happened there. And and not, I mean, he was oh, tapping yeah. in. Yeah. No, go on. Sorry. So, I mean, my, my full disclosure is I was, I, I'm not a registered Democratic Party member and I never, I, I, maybe never is wrong, but I wasn't in time to vote for Bernie Sanders. I didn't vote for Bernie Sanders, but it was very exciting for me to see, um, you know, socialism get mm-hmm. talked about in mainstream newspapers. Um, and that's only just continuing at, at a more astonishing rate um, since then. I mean, if you had told me six or eight months ago that there would be like debates about strike strategy and angles quotes and, right. uh, you know, how to how to how to organize your workplace and your man. Um, in, you know, Elle magazine, Cosmo, Vogue, Glamour, Teen Vogue. I mean, these are glamour. These are the now the centers of, of, of socialist feminist organizing and debate. That is comes quite a shock to me, to say the least. Yeah. <laughs> but a really, a really happy shock because it means that people are reading about these ideas um, and thinking about what the, how to make them happen in their lives. And that, you know, there's nothing more uh, really thrilling and important than that as far as I'm concerned. This uh, the the what I call the the pre-Trump or pre-Bernie and Trump political discourse hmm. of uh, the last thirty years uh, reminds Ooh. me of old black and white sitcoms where the couple uh, slept in separate beds, and uh, <laughs> and now that um you know socialism is a word that people use, it's kind of like this realism where. Um, Technicolor. Yeah, you get to see that people actually sleep in in the same bed when they're married on the sitcom. It, it's you know? totally true. Do you ever go, it's not just like old, old sitcoms. Do you ever go back and watch sitcoms literally from the nineties and there's a laugh track yes. and oh, like, God, it's yeah. actually the difference between TV then and TV now, because when you watch that, you're just like, wow, what is going on? Um, you know, and now we, now we have the, you know, streaming straight to the veins, reality TV and realistic, you know, drama. Um, that's just completely has a completely different feel. And I, I totally agree with you that politics feels completely different right now to me. And so where do people gather on March 8th if they want to be part of the strike, both in New York and also kind of where, where can people find out more about this? The, there's a couple, ton of different events. And you can go to the website, which is Women's Strike US. There's only one S in there. Um, so it's Women's Strike, not Women's Strike. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a whole list of events that are taking place in New York City tomorrow that you can look at and take part in. Um, and... Uh, you know, that kind of good stuff. If you're a student, there's a student walkout that's starting all the way from uptown from Columbus Circle and marching downtown um, to Washington Square, which is where the main rally is going to be at 4 o'clock. Um, and there's meetup points along the way at the Community Graduate Center, at a new school, 
Um, and then obviously Washington Square is right by NYU for the NYU folks. Um, but the main rally is going to be there in Washington Square Park. Uh, and then we're going to march down to Zuccotti Park with some kind of historical and uh, current political uh, stops along the way. Um, so that's the that's the main plan. So also people who are uh, not able to get out of work can, of course, meet us in Washington Square Park. We're not going to march until like 6 or 6.30. So um, hopefully people can get there in time to be part of the big main event. After the, after the main event, there's going to be a, a queer dance party in the streets starting uh, at outside of Stonewall. So, Ooh, um, wow. and sort of commemorating the radical history of Stonewall or maybe shaking our fist a little bit at the current realities of, of Stonewall and neoliberal, right. uh, neoliberal politics. Shaking your fist, but shaking your booties too as you dance. Yeah, exactly. Both of those things. That should be actually on the flyer. I don't know why you weren't part of that. Yeah, that's great, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a good, uh, yeah, shake your fists and your butt. Cool. And what time does that part start? 10 o'clock. Oh, great. So anybody that couldn't strike but gets off work can still go to the queer dance party. In front. Exactly. Okay. So it's, it's, it's a very long schedule of, of events. It's like a pub crawl, but for justice <laughs> and without the pubs <laughs> until the end. And it's going to be in the streets, right. um, the, the dance party? Yeah. Okay, great. Well, yep. thank you so much, Kate. And if there's anything else you want to talk about, I think your website isn't working, by the way. Is that because it's... I think it's, we're, we're getting so much traffic right now that the website is a little wonky. I, it's been cutting in and out all day. You I know, know what it is? I've sending people links. It's that the website um, is striking. It's on strike. It's practicing for tomorrow. <laughs> it's getting... That's not helpful. We need, the, we need the servers to get back in action. Exactly, yeah. Maybe it's... Oh, my God. Maybe it's some, like... Maybe it's some Sheryl Sandberg, some lean-in feminists in Silicon Valley have figured... Have uh, somehow dismantled this site i think the people that know how to take down the site are actually probably the workers not the bosses and even in silicon valley yeah i think it's probably true yeah so we should do that with theirs just kidding <laughs> enough of this class warfare <laughs> we'll save we'll save that for tomorrow we'll save that for next year exactly and what what are you working on now what what are your projects i am an adjunct uh, lecturer at hunter college and finishing my dissertation about nurses unions and unpaid labor in south africa and its role in a uh, political crisis that's ongoing in south africa so pretty relevant wow. um they sound like a really privileged yeah, group so. of people Sorry, no. <laughs> yeah if you if you made this argument to like south african unionists or yeah. just regular south african people you would be laughed out of the room but and politically i think you know i'm just really excited to see where this goes there's going to be a meeting that happens uh, after the strike where people who are interested in building uh, a longer term kind of organization or plan for action um, can meet up, and uh, I don't know exactly what's going to be happening at, at that meeting right now. I think it remains to be seen what happens tomorrow, and that will influence things. But that's one place my energy is going. And also, I've been for a little while working on a on a queer workers project. So anybody who's who is you don't have to be a queer worker, but the idea of being a place where uh, people can talk about how to protect themselves on the job from discrimination, and also how to organize at work um, as as people who are facing gender gender oppression and, and sexual oppression at work. So if anybody's interested in, in doing some of that and doing some organizing training, I would love to talk to them. Great. How can people reach you? I, I have got I got on Twitter just for this. So I'm like, like a Twitter neophyte, and I'm a babe in the woods on Twitter, but I'm there. Okay, great. Um, and it's, I think it's Kate Griff, uh, <laughs> and my email is also Kate Griff. At, at Gmail? Yeah. Okay, great. You're going to get inundated now. You're going to get the Katie Helper Show bump. <laughs> um, Thanks for talking to me about this. Of course. Thank you so much for coming on. Bye. Bye. That was a fun chat.
We did it. We did it. You know what, guys? We did it. As you said, Gabe, it takes a village. I think a great politician once said that. Yeah. And it wasn't Bernie Sanders. Let's, we'll leave it at that. Um, we are really excited to talk, talk to yet another guest who, again, is uh, part of this really privileged white bougie movement that to marginalize people of color and LGBT people who have never, ever gone on a strike in the history of the world. Titi Bhattacharya. She's a professor of South Asian history and the director of global studies at Purdue University. Hello. Hi, Titi. Hi, Katie. Hi, how are you? Good. Thank you. Welcome. And we're really blessed today because we got to speak to you. We're going to speak to you and we spoke to Kate uh, Doyle Griffiths. And we're, we just Kate, want... Kate is fabulous. Yes. You see that solidarity? So much solidarity. Right, right there. No <laughs> wonder you guys are organizing a, a strike. Um, I wanted to ask you about what the... We asked Kate this question, but I'm just curious what you would say the goals are. Like, what, what do you hope to see after this strike? And what the significance of it is. Like, why a strike? Why not something else? Right. So uh, let me start with the significance, and then maybe we'll move to the goals. So sure. I think in terms of significance, I want to say that this is the first time in many, many years, if not many, many decades, that we have seen an internationalist, anti-systemic women's movement being born. We are right there at the birth. The coordination amongst more than 50 countries, feminist groups in more than 50 countries so far, has been truly spectacular. And we have not seen this kind of an internationalist um, communication standing in solidarity and a weaving of issues between so many women's groups and so many countries um, before, um, uh, you know, the, after the 70s and, and so on. I think we, we saw some of this during um, Arab Spring. We've seen some international solidarity vis-a-vis -vis, um, the Palestine movement, vis-a-vis -vis Black Lives Matter movement, but they have not reached this proportion, I think, unfortunately, of coordination. I think this is a significant step forward for social movements and inter internationalism. And um, to go, so that would be, uh, for me, that's the sort of central um, point of excitement and resource for hope. Um, in terms of the goal, you know, um, so I, I think the, the goals are very clearly outlined in our platform, you know, reproductive justice and to gender violence of all forms, um, equal pay for equal work for women, um, anti-imperialism, a stop to wars and so on. Um, and I think these are very, very important goals and this is what we should be working towards. But I think the core political goal for many of us are, are twofold. One, to revive and talk about, bring back into the public memory and the public lexicon of feminism for the 99%, to for once reject the feminism of the Sheryl Sandberg and the Hillary Clinton. Because I think in the, in the decades even preceding tr Trump, I think what has happened is it's not that the language of women's rights or feminism has been lost, but the language of women's rights and feminism has been used to prop 
up capitalism. Right. So, you know, if you look at the um, the the label or the the goals for Girl Scout cookies, um, my child uh, buys them um, at school. You'll see the goals are success, right. business acumen. So these are the goals uh, that are written in the side of the packet of the Girl Scout cookies. Nice so girls words, don't get corner success. offices. What's that? That's I'm a sorry. book title. Oh, okay. Exactly. So it's it's basically that the success of being a woman is how far you can prop up capitalism, right? right? How far you can actually integrate and beat other women into succeeding at the system. This language of feminism is a blessing or curse of neoliberalism. Right. And for us, we want to wrest this language away um, from uh, the Sandbergs and the Clintons, and we want to talk about a feminism of 99% where feminism can be a threat to the system rather than a tool for strengthening it. Right. I mean, I would call it pseudo-feminism, right? But definitely your, the language of it <laughs> is being used, right? And uh, I think that's one of the most disturbing things that we've seen during this election, and it hasn't gone away, which is the total weaponization of identity politics used to as a way to kind of stifle or attack people who you don't agree with, and also as a way to kind of cover the neoliberal goals that you have, right? Right, yeah. exactly. Whether it's, you know, saying that uh, Bernie Sanders is a, a sexist, misogynist, um, racist, and of course that erases all POC and women in that camp. Same thing with socialists, right? We see a lot <laughs> of that, you know, and James Walcott had this piece called, uh, like, the alt-left is a problem too, and presents it, right. the alt-left, as this monolith of white dudes, straight white dudes. <laughs> and then they use the banner right. of feminism and, you know, anti-racism and anti-imperialism. So, for me, the interesting question, along with what you're saying, is what is a women's issue, mm. right? So, why isn't the, the goal or the project of socialism that uh, Bernie Sanders talked about, why isn't the question of universal health care a feminist issue. Mm. Why is universal health care an issue for men or for socialist men in particular, not an issue for women? Because actually what has what materially happens is the vast majority of caregivers, whether professional or in the um, home, the burden of caregiving falls on women. So if your child is sick, the woman is not just buying medicines and, and making sure that the child is comfortable, but often taking time off to take care of the child and, and, and worrying whether they will be able to afford the doctor's bill. So um, what neoliberalism has done essentially is cut social services to the bone and social provisioning to the bone. And as a result, women both have to work more outside the home and pick up the child care, elder care, health care that the state won't provide. And thus women are at the breaking point. So universal health care is actually, I would argue, a feminist issue. Mm. Um, <laughs> uh, free education is a feminist issue. If we look at the strikes that have happened in recent times, the Minnesota public teacher strike, the CTU strike in Chicago, the um, 
uh, the Seattle teacher strike um, and so on are all majority women-dominated unions. And in the case of the CTU, women of color-dominated unions with Karen Lewis leading the union in one of the most militant strikes of recent times. So that was um, mainstream newspapers reported that as the um, as a labor issue, and it certainly is a labor issue, but it is a feminist issue, not only in the direct sense that the vast majority of teachers in CTU are women and women of color, and that <coughs> um, it, in that sense it's a women's issue, but it is a women's issue in the sense that public education, free public education, free school for our children benefit women and the whole of society. So this is something that I think we need to talk more about how there cannot be a sectoralized feminism, a feminism that is separated out from the other veins of social oppression like racism and imperialism. A feminism, if it is truly to be a feminism of the 99%, must unite the veins of oppression and make a fist to strike against them. Hmm. We see that with the minimum wage. Everyone who listens to the show knows I, I talk about Bernie Sanders at least once a minute. But, you know, I'm also using him as shorthand, right, for this left, this yeah. progressive left wing of the of the the left versus the neoliberal one. During the election and even now, people would not see why the minimum wage, raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, why that would be a feminist issue, why being less of a right. hawk is a feminist issue. People couldn't see the connection between being less of a hawk, right? And I would explain that by on a very basic level. I would just be like, well, first of all, it's a great thing when less people are killed. Um, and even, <laughs> if, you know, I know it's a hot take, controversial, but even if you only care about stuff that affects women, um, women, just like they disproportionately make up uh, minimum wage workers, they also disproportionately make up victims in wars, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of displacement, rape. Yeah, and it was just weird to see... It, to have to explain this stuff. And I kept going back to Margaret Thatcher or Clarence Thomas as kind of examples of how identity and, and politics are not, or, or ideology and identity are not always linked. Absolutely. Our uh, skin folk are not always our kin folks. This has been Ooh, a long, like you know, that. standing tradition in the um, black movement. And so I think there, what kind of um, politics you're espousing is very, very crucial to uh, the project that we're trying to uh, talk about. I mean, the minimum wage is, is such, a, such a key issue that you bring up. I mean, I was just reading recently that actually low-wage jobs today constitute nearly 44% of all jobs um, in in the uh, so-called economic recovery under the last president, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, there was a lot of big deal made about um, jobs being recovered, and I'm very glad that these new jobs exist, but most of them are low-wage jobs. The, um, the U.S. is turning into a low-wage job economy, and most of these sectors are food service, home health care, retail, and who uh, stands behind a cash till uh, day in and day out, who actually works in restaurants and does home health care for uh, senior care and child care. It's mostly women. So uh, you are absolutely right that the low wage economy and the minimum wage question cannot be not a feminist question. It is a crucial um, issue and it's connected to 
Um, other issues in the sense that, you know, like if you think about reproductive justice, whether I can afford to have a child right now, on which depends questions of uh, free abortion on demand, um, not just whether that right exists, whether the right to free abortion exists um, is an important question, but also the question, if I do want to have a child, can I afford the child? So the question of how much I earn is actually connected to question of reproductive justice. So these issues just cannot be severed. Right. We said before on the show that, you know, there's this weird thing where where it seems like the more people call themselves intersectional, the less actually intersectional that they are. Um, And I'm, of course, not present company excluded. Right. But it is interesting the way that people who use that word to kind of beat up other people pretty often don't have a very intersectional view. And, you know, if you don't get the point that you just made, you're not an intersectional feminist. I mean, you see this with people making fun of the idea of free college. Right. They mock that. And these Mm -hmm. are women who call themselves feminists. Well, you have to have skin in the game. Yes, exactly. We should we should have a recording of Hillary saying that that we can just cut into into our shows. Right. Um, <laughs> right. And you have a, a piece that in today's na- uh, no in yeah it was it's in the Nation today called "When Did Solidarity Correct. Among Working Women Become a Privilege?" quote unquote privilege. And sure, this is really great. And you say. Um, You say the international women's strike of March 8th is being put together with the unpaid labor of mostly women-led and grassroots organizations. No sponsorship from businesses, big or small, underwrites our organizing. As organizers, we believe that while Trump epitomizes our problems, the problems of devastating inequality, rampant racism and sexism, and violent imperialism did not begin with Trump. They are rooted in the history of the U.S. settler colonialism. And... Were ex- and were exacerbated in the decades of neoliberalism that preceded Trump. The solution to dangerous Trumpism, hence, is not the quote-unquote progressive neoliberalism of Hillary Clinton. This position of neither Clinton nor Trump has predictably, predictably ruffled some feathers within the mainstream feminist establishment. Megan Down, writing in the L.A. Times, characterizes March 8th as only for privileged women and because working-class women, according to Dom, could not afford to skip work, shuffle childcare, and, and using the same logic, you write, Maureen Shaw, writing for Quartz, argues that March 8th may be a good idea, but, it, quote, but it's likely that mostly privileged women will be the ones participating, end quote. Um, this is interesting, because I kind of see this as a microcosm of what we were talking about, which is the weaponization of identity politics, right, where we where we saw a lot of people who called themselves feminists, called themselves anti-racist, take the the skin as opposed to the kin, right? Mm-hmm. And push forward policies or positions that are actually bad for that, that very population, right? And, of course, flattening the, the population into a monolith. You link this to, to that very explicitly. You say both Shaw and Dome have been vocal supporters of Hillary Clinton's candidacy. During Clinton's campaign, Shaw wrote, Quote, we are witnessing history, feminist history in the making. If Hillary ends up in the Oval Office this November, she will be America's first female president. But equally important, she will be our first openly and unapologetically feminist president. And you, you say the March 8th strike is first and foremost against this version of feminism, a feminism that allows truly privileged 
women like Hillary Clinton and Sheryl Sandberg to use the language of women's rights to prop up capitalism. That is not, we think, the solution to the immiseration of millions of women. The NYC rally will not feature any celebrities. It is going to be the rally of the oppressed or the ex- of the exploited, of the poor, but also the rally of small victories against capitalism, exploitation, and oppression due to the hard work, activism, and courage of women, cis and trans, of course, immigrant black, cis and trans working class women, mothers of those killed by state and police violence, and sex workers will be on the stage. The women you don't usually see in the media and featured at big events, but who make our life on this planet possible through their work. Are these the women whom Dam and Shaw wish to call privilege? The absurdity is so apparent that the heart of the matter must lie elsewhere. March 8th is proposing a different solution to Trump and Trumpism than the one envisioned by women like Dom and Shaw. Shaw wants us to offer, quote-unquote, fact sheets, suggest, quote, language for contacting elected officials, end quote, and provide tips for effective lobbying as ways to help engage women. Her message is clear as day. She wants us to channel our anger against Trump into the coffers and bowels of the Democratic Party. We don't. I'm going to have to add an applause track to that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you really nailed it there. Like, in a nutshell, you get to the core of what this is about. And again, you know, like we saw people using identity politics to to put forward Clintonianism. And here, even in this in, in this argument about privileged people, I feel like they're doing the same thing, right? They don't want a a an intersectional and radical solution to Trumpism. They want a Clintonian one, right? And they can't say that. They can't say that you guys are too radical. I mean, they can. They'll say that we're a pie in the sky, right? Uh, politics of purity, all that stuff. But I think what they're doing, this is kind of a new thing that they're trying, is they're pretending that we and this movement is um, erasing and marginalizing and visibilizing people with less privilege. And of course, they're doing that very thing. You have your finger right there in the in the real heart of the matter. First of all, um, I think we wrote this when we were absolutely enraged by the absurd allegations that were being hurled at um, uh, the international women's strike. And, you know, one thing I want to also kind of draw attention to is that it seemed almost coordinated. These articles Mm. came out almost, you know, back to back of each other, making the exact same point that this is about privilege and actually, um, uh, you know, the most oppressed in society were, in other words, being risked by the organizing, right? So this was this was a, such an outrageous and absurd charge against the international women's strike, which is being organized precisely by those that uh, Hillary Clinton's um, uh, class has uh, left behind, has robbed of a voice that we thought we absolutely have to uh, rise and answer to. I think um, in terms of the... Um, Argument. I mean, if we remember and, and read about feminism of the um, 1960s and 70s, to be a feminist was considered anti-establishment. It was considered a, a raging, you know, um, exclamation point towards the sexism and heteronormativity of society. That's what being a feminist meant. I mean, apparently no bras were ever burned in the U.S. and the U.K. during the women's movement. That was a a mythology, an anecdotal mythology that was created about the women's movement. But to me, it's important that they created that mythology rather than women got corner offices and, you know, and had um, 70 women's 
staff working at minimum wage under them. That was not the mythology about the women's movement. The mythology was women marching, women uh, protesting against uh, sexual morality that tried to put them back in the house and so on. So that image of feminism, I think, was used in form. The form of radicalism was used, and it's and a vicious neoliberal content was poured into this mold. And I think it started in the 1980s with Maggie Thatcher in in um, Britain and uh, continued down the line with various um, uh, women um, heads of state in the 1970s. I have spent my childhood in two countries with women heads, one in India with Indira Gandhi. Indira Gandhi? Yeah, perfect who was known for massacre of, um, uh, you know, it, there was a program called Garibi Hatao in India, which was essentially in Hindi, it means um, get rid of poverty. But what it meant was um, actually gentrifying entire urban areas and bulldozing uh, so-called slums where the poor lived. So Garibi Hatao or get rid of poverty literally meant get rid of poor people. Mm. Uh, similar thing in, in uh, Britain in the 1980s when I, I lived there, which was Margaret Thatcher in, in a power. And as young children, uh, it, she cut um, milk services to schools. So um, in, in public schools, she was popularly um, scorned as Thatcher milk snatcher. So things that benefited poor and benefited poor women were things that um, these people, heads of state, took away and then um, retained this shallow language of women empowerment when they were actually taking away social empowerment from the vast majority of women. So that is... um, that is a legacy that I think Hillary Clinton absolutely epitomizes. And, uh, you know, um, to me, the election was so dismal because against this rampant, misogynist, homophobic, Islamophobic man, we had this um, absolutely um, robotic, mechanical, capitalist, neoliberal um, uh, person. So uh, in other words, I think neoliberal capitalism was actually much happier to back Hillary Clinton than they were to back Donald Trump, because Donald Trump could sort of go off their ruling class script, while Hillary Clinton was absolutely Wall Street's chosen candidate. So the choice for ordinary people was dire. And, And, you know, after Bernie's defeat, I think most, I wouldn't even say that Trump won because of votes for Trump. I think Trump won because people stayed home and couldn't bear to vote Hillary. So um, it's it's this kind of feminism, um, lean-in feminism that that has led in this dire um, path for the vast majority in actually... um, um, in, in actual policy decisions of uh, commiseration, but I think it has done us a major harm of robbing protests 
prophet's language of feminism, right? Mm. Because feminism has come to be associated with the likes of uh, Sandberg and Mar- Marissa Meyer, the head of Yahoo, and, and Hillary Clinton. And so protest has kind of lost this language of women's rights. And we want to bring that back onto the street where feminism belongs. Right. It's so funny because speaking of privilege, Maureen Shaw, the one who wrote the Quartz article, um, I saw her yeah. tweeting at Women Strike US and said, she said, happy to discuss further if you'd like. My DMs are open. She says, um, oh, wow. She, she says, um, <laughs> she says, I, some, um, I respect the working class women of color and immigrant women who put their weight behind it. But from my perspective, as someone who can't not engage in labor, it felt unrealistic. Happy to discuss further if you'd like. My DMs are open. Now, speaking of privilege, right? I think it's interesting that a woman is writing to the Twitter account of of an organ of a movement that is organizing a strike tomorrow. And it's very nice of her to offer to chat with them over DM, but they may be busy. Just thinking, you know, maybe. I, I think, I, I think um, this is a movement that um, we want to encourage individual conversations with right. people who oppose us. But I think we want to have a political discussion on the picket lines, on the streets, with those who oppose a feminism of the 99%, because we no longer think that just conversations are enough. Right. Um, we do think that um, the way to bring the conversations back on the table in a way that both parties are equal is to have power on the streets. So I would say to Maureen Shaw that we are very, very glad that you want to discuss this. Us. We hope uh, you will be marching with us. It's at 4 p.m. at Washington Square Park, and we hope you can join us in the march. And I think conversations in a solidarity march, marching for women's rights, are far more productive and fruitful than over Twitter. Yeah, I agree. And um, But I just like the idea of, of this Twitter account that's literally organizing a strike you know, taking taking time away from that and, and, and DMing someone a, a little policy debate or, uh, you know, uh, organizing debate. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I said this earlier to Gabe. You know, my mom worked full time and she would take me to rallies. I'm not shaming people who don't take their kids to protests, but right. I, I'm a little bit, you know, I think the, the martyr narr- martyrdom narrative is a bit over the top. There are people and, with a lot, there are I, women with a lot more to lose who are going to be striking tomorrow than Maureen Shaw. <laughs> Sorry, I know well, I should pick on that. I mean, but... again, I, I don't want to speak to Maureen Shaw's personal condition, but here's, here's the thing. Why frame it this way? Why frame it as, because this is a neoliberal framing of yeah. competition. This is an oppression Olympics, yeah, totally. right? Who is more oppressed than the other? Why not frame it in this sense that tomorrow we are going to be striking in various Forms, as varied as the forms of women's labor, in solidarity with each other and with women in over 50 countries. That should be the framing, that we're doing this in solidarity, not in this competitive, you know, sort of almost macho, who can do it better, who is more oppressed. That is a framing that I absolutely reject. Because we are not in this to prove who is more, you know, protest scarred than others and who is because actually some of us have been um, in less social movements for, you know, 
uh, you know, several decades, and some of us have not. I think we want to talk about a new generation of men and women being radicalized and coming out into the streets right now. So this is not about competition of who can, who cannot. This is about creating conditions for a time when everybody can, right? And those conditions cannot be created without mass struggles. So when we talk about mass struggles, we need to talk in, in terms of framing it as solidarity rather than competition. Right. I mean, I think it's, I mean, I think really what it is, is it's trying to use these same talking points, right? That we're, that they're just being practical, right? That we're being unrealistic, they're being practical, and that we're not being sensitive to disenfranchised people, right? And we really see the same techniques, the same strategies that they used with the Bernie campaign, right? Pie in the sky, unrealistic, yeah. uh, b- supported by Bernie bros, waving his finger at Hillary Clinton, um, which I love the idea that that, First of all, as a secular Jew, I would just like to say that there's a lot of finger wagging that men and women do. <laughs> um, and, I, and also, right. you know, the idea that that is more important than, say, for example, the return to the minimum wage issue than, than the minimum wage is like, God, for, God forbid, that's your worst problem as a woman. And I'm not trying to do the exactly what you said not to do, which is the oppression Olympics. But um I do see this as as a, as very much using those tools and applying it here. And, you know, it's not paranoid to think that these things are coordinated because we know that the Bernie bro narrative was embedded ahead of time by people from the Clinton campaign. Sure. I mean, for me also, it is, I would rather have a finger wagging socialist. Exactly. Jewish man, you know, over 70 (coughs) telling me, that he wants to fight for universal health care than a very suave, um, soft-spoken, neoliberal woman telling me that she's going to bomb the hell out of Yemen. Yeah, exactly. Right. And that's what I mean. I mean, again, it's the danger of the representation. And how, how, like, how detached are you from the experiences of other women to prioritize the, your reaction to finger-wagging over the reaction to bombs and strikes and drones, drone strikes? Um, well... Thank you so much. Uh, this is a really a great discussion. Are you actually coming to New York? I am. Oh, I'm, great. I'm in the airport on my way. Oh, great. Yeah, well, maybe I can meet up with you <laughs> tomorrow. Um, I'll, 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 I'll text with you, but I may be there doing some uh, Facebook living. Excellent. Excellent. Great. Well, thank you very much for having me, and I'll see you at 4 o'clock at Washington yes. Square Park. Great. Thank you so much, Titi. Take care. Bye. You too. Bye. Go to patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. You'll definitely want to hear the bonus episode because the organizers respond to some major controversies.